One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Everyone worries about Iran. Lots of people are interested. There's the nuclear issue. There are all these fatwas against Salman Rushdie. They've got the sectarian issues, the oil, the militias in Syria and Iraq, and so on and so on. But we're not doing foreign policy. We're doing inside Iran. And I've got Piers Lynch and Elizabeth Davis with me now, the producers of this week's uh, programme. So, Piers, tell us, why are we doing inside Iran? We're largely doing uh, Inside Iran because we work with lots of remarkable Iranian journalists in this very building who had amazing access uh, Inside Iran through the BBC Persian TV channel. And uh, we just thought, why not find out what Iranians are actually talking about with these really uh, important elections? So it's been a, it's been a really fun week actually running around inside this ginormous behemoth of a, a news machine. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, one of the I mean, one of the reasons there are so many sort of talented Iranians floating around the BBC building and many other parts of London is that one of the figures that will come up in the program. It's an extraordinary thing: one hundred and fifty thousand, one hundred and fifty thousand students leave every year to go and get an education abroad. Yeah, it's quite incredible. I think people, you know, from the outside, particularly forget that, you know, Iran is a very developed country, it's very educated, a huge proportion of people speak English. And so it's not perhaps surprising, actually, that so many of them leave to do sort of further education and master's degrees and, and, and stuff like that abroad. But it also means, you know, there's an incredibly healthy social media environment, you know, a lot of internet use and, and stuff inside the country. And there's loads going on. And so it just seemed like the perfect opportunity for us to sort of take a closer look at it. So we've got politics. Yeah. We've got the economy. Yep. We've got uh, music, attitudes to music. Yes, well, you know, yes. we always like to work a bit of music into we've got our some, programs. We've got some, <laughs> got, some, got some Iranian heavy metal. We do, stay, yeah. Stay Listen, t- stay with us for that. Stay yeah. tuned for that. Uh, so anyway, it's all a good time to do this because of the elections that are on for the Legislative Chamber and the Assembly of Experts. So first of all, let's just get a rapid explanation of what's going on in these elections. Here's Kazra Naji. Iranians are going to the polls to vote in two elections. The first one is to fill 290 seats of Iran's parliament. The second vote is to choose the 88 members of the so-called Assembly of Experts, a constitutional body of elder and senior clerics. The Assembly's term runs for eight years. They can choose the next supreme leader, should the present leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, who is now 76, die or become incapacitated. Both elections are a test of strength between two strands of the Islamic regime in Iran, the strands that have dominated the political scene in the country for decades, the conservative hardliners and the reformists. Many in Iran are doubtful of the usefulness of voting. They see little difference between the two. But the elections could still produce surprises and even set Iran on a different path. That towards moderation, better relations with the outside world and more freedoms at home. The parliamentary elections are the first test of public opinion since the signing of a nuclear deal with six world powers a deal in which Iran effectively gave up its option of nuclear weapon for the lifting of the international sanctions, sanctions that crippled the economy. And President Rouhani, who masterminded the deal, is keen to reap the benefit at the polls. 
President Rouhani hopes his supporters will dominate the next parliament so that he can push through his reform agenda without serious opposition. The reformists and pro-democracy activists and even some moderate conservatives are backing him, urging their supporters to go out and vote in big numbers, in spite of the fact that many of their leaders have been barred from the elections. The hardliners who lost the presidential elections to President Rouhani nearly three years ago are determined that the next parliament will be able to stop him and his reform agenda. The hardliners retain control of many centers of power in Iran, and many believe they may go to any lengths to prevent a moderate parliament from taking shape. Looking on is Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. He favors a hardline parliament that will stand up to the West and particularly the U.S. He wants an Iran that will continue with its present regional ambitions in Syria, in Iraq and in Yemen. There's a lot at stake. There we are. That was Kazra Naji with that brief tour of what's going on. Let me now introduce our all-Iranian panel today. So why don't you tell me where you're from in Iran, just so that we establish your Iranian credentials straight away. Uh, we've got Sanam Dolat Shahi, who's with BBC Persian TV. You are from originally... Tehran. Tehran. Uh, welcome. We've got uh, Dr. Javed Salahi Isfahani. I think that's a giveaway, isn't it? You're a Virginia Tech now, but originally from... <laughs> I'm originally from Iran, but I actually was uh, born and raised in Khorasan in the east, not in Isfahan. Oh, I see. So your name is misleading. Uh, and we've got Nazila Fati, who's a former New York Times Iran correspondent and the author of The Lonely War, One Woman's Account of the Struggle for Modern Iran. Uh, you're talking from Washington, but you're from? Yes, I am talking from Washington, uh, but I'm from Tehran. Another Tehrani. And we've got Mohammed Shabani, editor of the Iran Pulse section of the Al Monitor News website. You're actually in Canterbury in the UK today, but you are from... Also Tehran. Oh, dear me. <laughs> what, an urban, <laughs> what an urban selection. Anyway, I'm going to make you all talk about provincial politics then to, to balance it out. And why don't we start outside the studio, perhaps with you, Mohammed Shabani, in Canterbury. Which is the more important body, the legislature, the majlis, or... The Assembly of Experts. Well, I think it depends on what you define by important and in what time frame. The Assembly of Experts is tasked with deciding the next Supreme Leader in case uh, the current Supreme Leader dies or is incapacitated or is deemed not to be able to fulfill his duties. The term of the Assembly of Experts is around eight years. So uh, assuming that the Supreme Leader will be alive in, in the next eight years, it will not have any importance. The Parliament, on the other hand, can play an active role in, in defining and shaping legislation, being able to pass or stop the President's agenda for the economy, for his foreign policy, many other matters. So uh, again, the definition of importance and the time frame is crucial to be able to, de to determine which body is more relevant. I take your point, but uh, Javed Salahi Hisfahani, if if you were, you know, standing for election and you had a complete free free choice, would you rather be a member of the Majlis or a member or or an expert as part of the Assembly of Experts? Oh, definitely the Majlis, the Parliament, because uh, as an economist, I care a lot about the economic reforms that uh, Rouhani is promising, and I'd like to see those passed. Okay, well, that helps us understand the, the bodies that uh, people are electing members to. But can you, Sanam 
Dalat Shahi, just help us understand, put these elections in context for us. You know, we hear a lot about the progress of internal Iranian politics and President Rouhani is there and he's trying to bring in some reforms. How much do these elections matter? Well, it depends on uh, from what perspective are you looking at it. If you are looking at the small towns, villages, rural areas, this election is very important because it's parliamentary election and it is local for many people around the world, uh, around Iran. So uh, historically, they always voted and it mattered for them because the MP they choose directly will affect their daily lives. And then if you're talking politically, well, yes, in many bigger cities, because there are more candidates and uh, people have some sort of choice to change the political makeup of the Iranian parliament. So that could also matter politically for people. I'm sure we're going to end up talking mainly about that, the national picture. But just on your very interesting point about all politics is local, which, of course, is true everywhere. You know, If you're in a, a remote province of Iran and you're electing a member here, would you get a choice between, what, an Islamist, a big local family representative, or were they all broken in a revolution? What, what sort of candidates do you get the choice between? Mainly, most of them would be conservative and uh, most of them will be Islamic. But the criteria that people will be choosing will not be politics and political affiliations. They will look, yes, family relations matter a lot. I was looking at this um, local news agencies to see with a small town in Kokeluyam, Boyer Ahmad province. And it was the matter that which family members have endorsed one candidate and the news agency name mentioned all of the members of the family, even the son-in-law, the father-in-law, you know, of course, all of them male. So these kind of uh, relations matter more in smaller cities. Okay, Nazila Fati, can you sort of broaden it out for us? And just, uh, yeah, we, we, we've heard that this will be a national election as well. And of course, Iran is massive, and it's powerful, and it borders lots of unstable countries, Iraq and Afghanistan, and so on. So ju- ju- just give us some picture of you know, putting that, the election into context in that way. The parliamentary elections are important because these are the first elections since the 2009 uprising when people went to the polls and they felt that they were cheated, that the government robbed uh, the elections from them. They went back again to the polls in 2013 and they were surprised that the candidate that they voted for, Hassan Rouhani, was in fact elected. So there is a lot of hope in the air this time. People are, especially in the large cities where reform, the so called reform camp and the moderates matter to people are running. People are going to the polls hoping that they can elect them and the outcome is important to them to see whether their votes would be counted, whether these people would be allowed uh, to, to go to parliament. Because the decisions that they make eventually will have an impact not just on economic, but also on political and social and cultural decisions. People do have economic needs, but when you talk to people on a daily basis, one thing that affects them is daily repression, is uh, the cultural repression that the Islamic Republic reinstated since the 1979 revolution. And without doubt, that has been changing. Things have gotten a lot better, even under uh, President Rouhani in the past uh, three years. So these are all the little things that people care about. And they go to the polls and they want to see a parliament that is not going to roll back the, the progress that has been made. 
Right, we are trying in this programme to uh, hear from Iranians, Iranian voices, and just to help us do that, let's hear one of the programmes that Sanam makes, Sanam here, who's with us in the studio, because you're with Persian TV, and you broadcast, they've got a huge audience, and one of the programmes is a call-in show, and you get people ringing in from Iran and Afghanistan and around the world, right? Uh, and you've been asking your viewers why they're voting or not voting in this election. Here's a, a, a small selection of what people have been telling you. Behruz from Kurdistan province in western Iran. I'm against participation in election because the election is important for the regime. If it wasn't important, they wouldn't urge us to vote. They want to show the world that they are still popular and have legitimacy. Janice from Khuzestan, southern province in Iran. We have problems with water, dust particles, and dust storms, and bad air in our province. Recently, Ahwaz was recognized as one of the most polluted cities in the world. Our region is one of the main regions to generate revenues for the country because of its oil, and then see how our condition is. No justice for us. Hamid from the Qom. Iran's election is one of the most free elections in the world. The supreme leader has invited everyone to participate in the election as voters, if not as candidates. Nahid from Tehran. This parliament did nothing for women and women's rights. I do not trust any of them. This is the reason that I decided not to cast my vote in this election. Well, how interesting, because it sounds just like many Western electorates. You know, I don't trust any of them. And actually, what bothers me is pollution or something. Nothing to do with all the issues we talk about, personal liberty and religion and all this. No, it's the pollution. So, Sanam, that was very interesting. And can you just help us with a question? I know a lot of people struggle with when it comes to Iranian politics. How democratic is the system? Because the candidates are pre-screened. Some are deselected before they can ever even stand. How much does that compromise the system? Well, it depends from whose perspective you're talking about. If you're talking about from the perspective of hardliners or this person from Qom we just heard, this conservative, it's a free election. And within our constitution, we have the system of the Guardian Council to uh, pre-screen the candidates. And the argument is that we cannot let anybody to run, but we are inviting everybody to vote. But from the other perspective, from perspective of other the rest of the nation, well, it's not a free election. If you look at the list of people who have been qualified, you see that just very selective group of people, which they they share one thing, and that's none of them said anything against the supreme leader. So they might have shown some progressive politics, but none of them will challenge the main status quo. So there are some red lines, and if you cross them, you can't stand. Mohammed Shabani, do you think that's a fair assessment? I think there's a lot of people who haven't crossed any red lines that were still disqualified. People like the grandson of the founder of the Islamic Republic, Ayatollah Khomeini, his grandson, Hassan Khomeini. Yes, that was amazing. It couldn't stand. Being barred from running. So the Guardian Council, in my view, has become increasingly politicized in recent years. Why wouldn't the grandson of Khomeini be able to stand? 
Well, the reason many of the much of the pressure that you're seeing on the reformists and the moderates right now, the key person all of this is aimed at uh, is Ayatollah Hashemi Rafsanjani, uh, the current head of the Expediency Council and the previous head of the Assembly of Experts. He also served two terms as president in the 1990s. Rafsanjani, key Rafsanjani. guy. Tell us why these pre-selection issues centre around him. So the hardliners in the Guardian Council. The Guardian Council is a body made up of 12 people. Six people are jurists. The others are Islamic scholars appointed by the Supreme Leaders. Many of them are quite conservative. You could count them as hardliners. These people are very much opposed to the person of Ayatollah Hashemi Rafsanjani and the policies and the, the camp he represents. Among the people in this camp are today uh, people like Mohammad Khatami, the former reformist president, current president Rouhani, and also Sayyid Hassan Khomeini. So uh, it's guilt by association, so to speak. That's the main reason why they're going after people like Sayyid Hassan Khomeini. OK, I think, I think we're going to have to go through the labels. Help me define them. So all jump in, if you could, and please tell us who's speaking before you do so. This is Nazila from uh, D.C. You know, let's start with the moderates and the reformers. Yeah, we keep on referring to a lot of moderates as reformers or uh, people who belong to the reform camp. But the truth of the matter is that the reform party or the reform camp that was led by President Khatami from 1997 until President Ahmadinejad was elected, or even a little bit after that, has been completely crushed. Its leaders have been jailed and alienated. People who we are seeing right now, including President Rouhani, these are moderate figures who've had some kinds of affiliations to the reform movement or even no affiliation. Uh, But over the years, they have started expressing much more moderate ideas or even pro-reform ideas. So when we call them reformers, it's just just because of the kind of uh, ideas and notions that they have rather than their affiliation uh, to a particular camp. Okay, so I'm getting, let's just just clarify that. So things have shifted. There were reformists who were let's say, on the liberal end of it, the left end of it, the the opposite to the religious end of it. And I'm sure all those things are subject to qualification. But in general terms, that, that sort of position. And they have gone, and it's now people who were more towards the middle who are representing the moderate wing of Iranian politics. This is Javad speaking from Virginia. I wanted to clarify a little bit this distinction between reformists and moderates. Not uh, all reformers have disappeared. Some of them have actually become moderates. And the reason why they have become moderates, I think, is because on, uh, during the Khatami p- uh, presidency, they tried to reform the political system and they failed. And now they've become convinced that if they can reform the economy and there is economic progress and the middle class can prosper, that eventually politics can be reformed. So uh, some of the reformers who have joined under uh, Rouhani's uh, banner and are uh, vying for these uh, uh, parliamentary elections are true reformists. It's just that they're now more interested in reforming the economy than reforming the constitution. Right, so much more pragmatic than they were 10 years ago. Can I... Yeah, Mohammed Shivani. Uh, I just wanted to clarify that, in my view, um, we should be very careful about distinguishing between reformist and reformer. Ah. I think R- Rouhani is a reformer very much people around him in the centre. Rouhani himself is centre-right, actually. So I see your point. So These are so, reformers, but yeah. they're not reformists. So reformists is more this old school we're hearing about that we're much more on the liberal end of politics, and then the reformers is what's happening now with Rouhani trying to bring in economic reform. So let's, just, let's just deal with what used to be called, and probably still is, uh, the hardline 
side of Iranian politics, which, from what I can understand, can be split roughly into pragmatic conservatives and ultra-conservatives. Is that fair? Does anyone want to comment on that, Sanam? Within the conservatives' camp, there are different factions, and we have more extreme ones, less extreme ones. It's quite complicated, and they have a lot of competition with each other. So they say, some say that the most extreme part of it is uh, what they call the front of Islamic revolution stability, which is its spiritual leader is Ayatollah Mesbah, which who is a very ultra conservative leader. And then we have different other factions. So it's very complicated to see all of them as a homogeneous group of conservatives. One more point before we close this first half of the programme, which I think perhaps we haven't heard from you for a bit, Nazila Fati, you could address, which I don't think is much understood in the West. Most voters in Iran are probably floating voters. I mean, we see the thing completely polarised, but most people are in the middle and, you know, may vote one way, may vote another way. I don't think so. Uh I actually think it's a matter of voter turnout. If there is a big turnout, uh, there's no doubt that people are going to vote for the moderates. The question is whether they'll come out and vote. Otherwise, uh, the conservatives, they do have their own uh, supporters. They know how big or how small they are, and that's a very clear size. It is the reformers or the moderates that are waiting for their own supporters to come out. And they've been trying their best this week to sort of steer excitement among people because every time people come out and vote and there's a big turnout, the Supreme Leader comes out and says, OK, this is a sign that this regime is legitimate. We have people's support for the regime. Uh, they don't read the the message that people are sending out. So a lot of people are saying, OK, we're not going to come out and sort of lend you our legitimacy. Uh, But uh, there are people who are trying to change that conversation and say that this is the only time you can have a come out and have a say in politics. Actually, there is just one other thing on the politics, which I think we need to discuss. And perhaps, Mohammed Shabani, you could help us with it, which is, you know, we did see street politics in 2009. And it ended up, you know, disastrously for some people and didn't really achieve much. Is, Is that era of street politics over? Before I answer that question, I think, uh, if possible, I could address some points about voter turnout and how Iranians, I think, most of them uh, vote. I think, first of all, Iranian voters are very tactical. Iranians very rarely vote for the person they like. They vote for the enemy of the person they dislike. This should be borne in mind, I think. And this is the reason why you see dynamics where people who voted for, say, Khatami were willing to vote for Hashemi Rafsanjani in the next election, even though in, the, in previously these two people were complete rivals. Secondly, I would say that Iranians are, they gripped by election fever very late. So it's not like, say, in the U.S. where people make up their minds nine months in advance, where you have a very long campaigning process. The campaigns themselves, they last less than a week, 48 hours before the elections, all campaigning is banned. Um, but you see some of that changing with social media. So I think Iran, a lot of people, a huge proportion of the population belong to the Hezbollah, the party of the wind. <laughs> and wherever the wind may blow in the final hours, that can that can have huge impact. And we saw this uh, in 2013. And I think we'll see the same thing probably now as well. Uh, now about your question in terms of, uh, of street politics. Now, I was in Iran in 2009 and the, the atmosphere then was, was very unique. Uh, I haven't seen anything like that before and anything after. 
And from what I hear in Tehran, the main issue right now is dealing that the reformists have to deal with is voter apathy. They need to get out the vote. So it's not a question of people being overexcited on the street. It's a question of getting people to go out and actually cast their ballots. Thank you all very much. Fascinating. We are going to take a short break now. Uh, just to remind you, we'd like to know what you are thinking about the programme to get your response to what we're broadcasting. The email address is newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. We read them all. You can tweet us, BBC NH Extra. You can send suggestions for future programmes. You can just comment on what you've heard on the programme. And also you can get the podcast. And the way to do that is to search for BBC NewsHour Extra podcast in your search engine or just go to your podcast provider, NewsHour Extra, BBC NewsHour Extra, and you can get every edition. There's one edition, one hour every week. You're listening to NewsHour Extra from the BBC World Service with Owen Bennett-Jones. And this week we're looking inside Iran. We have Sanam Shahi from the BBC Persian TV. We have Javed Salahi Isfahani from Virginia Tech. We have Nazila Fati, a former New York Times Iran correspondent, and Mohammed Shabani, who's with us from the UK. He's with Al Monitor. Now then, Iran does have a brain drain problem. It is reckoned it's a remarkable number that 150,000 students leave every year. Now, of course, many of them go back, but not all. It is a lot of talent leaving the country. But, on the other hand, they're getting top-class foreign education, and if they do go back, it's a brain gain. I've been talking to two Iranian students studying in London, Mohammed, who's over from Tehran, and Nina, who was actually brought up in Switzerland. To Mohammed first, is he hopeful about these elections? Uh, I, I wish I would, but I, I don't think like reformers can make, even if the, all their candidates go into the parliament, they won't have the majority, unfortunately. But I'm happy that this is a still a pay, like a step to become more liberal Iran. And what about you, Nina? Are you, are you following the elections? Yes, uh, yes, I'm following them, uh, mostly through um, through my friends who are in Iran. So I'm asking them. Uh, they are all students uh, if they are going to vote. And yes, they are. They are very hopeful, also because of the nuclear deal. So. Um, there's like kind of uh, a new wave of, of hope. Now then, you've both got slightly different sort of personal histories. Nina, you were brought up actually in Switzerland, but you're a dual citizen. But Mohammed, you were brought up in Tehran. Mohammed, how old are you now? I'm 23. 23, and you're in your third year. So you probably were thinking about leaving Iran, what, when you were 17, 18? Uh, 16, I was like thinking to leave, but I left yeah, when I was 18. Right, so that's pretty young. What, why is a 16-year-old in Tehran thinking, you know what, I prefer to get out of here? That time, uh, my determination wasn't about politics at all. It was mostly just, I don't want to live here. I think if I go abroad, I will have a much better life. It was my expectation of like coming out of the country. Nina, I think last time you were in Iran, you were in a college with probably more conservative families sending their children there as well. So quite an interesting situation. There are you from Switzerland and London and all the rest of it, and then in a, a sort of Iranian university that might be a bit more conservative. Just, just tell us how that worked and how you related to the other people at the university. Yes, yeah, so um, it was very interesting to spend uh, these three months in the Mashhad University, so I lived with the students there. I, w- I was very lucky because I was an insider, because I'm originally from Iran, but I was also this outsider coming from Europe. So they were very interested in knowing my experience of being abroad, and they really wanted to go abroad. Being from a traditional background, they would need to be married in order to go abroad. Still, I could see how, how politically engaged they are, and, and it's not just about, they didn't speak just about policy, but also the interpretation of, of Islam. And, um, yeah, so there was a, a very interesting level of debates going on at the university. 
Mohammed, I can see you nodding there. Yeah, for sure. There are much more people are like studying using so many Instagram, other social medias. Even though so many things are banned in Iran, i.e., Facebook, but they always find the alternatives, methods to connect, and they say what they want to say. Like they don't have any fear commenting, or they don't have any fear like publishing what their view is. So actually, social media have developed so much since it has developed so much through the world and also Iran. People are more open to discuss about politics. And specifically, it's social media that's enabled that because it's, it's allowed a mass voice to emerge, I guess. For sure, yeah. And um, also what is interesting is that um, social media shows the, the level of debates happening in the society, but now we can actually have, follow them from abroad and participate. So it's also very interesting how the diaspora can take part into uh, to this, this conversation uh, with Iranians like, uh, who are there. There we are, a couple of Iranian students in London keeping an eye on the elections back home. Now then, let's move on to the economy. And uh, as that uh, young man said, he's uh, thinking about the economy when he comes over to the West. He wants to get a job here. He said probably if he could get a job, he'd prefer to stay and uh, have that career opportunity here, which is not going to be available to him in Iran. Uh, Dr. Javed Salahi Isfahani, the sanctions are being lifted. The deal's been done. How much impact is it making? How much hope is there that the economy in Iran can pick up? It's actually very difficult to uh, attribute any change to sanctions alone because just about when sanctions were being lifted and the nuclear deal was being signed, oil prices were collapsing. And oil is much more important for Iran and for Iran's economy than it is uh, foreign trade, you know. There are certainly benefits from lifting of sanctions. There is uh, some previous oil money that was frozen outside that's now finding its way. There is uh, probably another $20 billion savings on uh, making foreign transactions. Lots of businessmen are showing up in Tehran. Some of them are actually planning to uh, put money into Iran. So those are going to make uh, for improvement. Unfortunately, not yet, because right now what is going on is two things. One, Rouhani's own policies that were focused on fighting inflation, and he succeeded, maybe succeeded too well. Just to explain that, yeah, inflation was 40% just as recently as 2013 and, and 13, that's, 14% that's right. now. Yeah. He went very uh, hard against inflation, and not surprisingly, as you know, when you have tough monetary policy recession follows. So the economy as a result has, if not contracted, has not grown at all. And that's exactly the opposite of what he was promising. When he was running for election, he said, elect me and you will see economic improvement. That's what happens. Okay, that's, that's interesting. So you've got low oil prices and you've got monetary, sort of tight monetary policy, both restraining growth. But can I just, just on the sanctions, there's one thing I wanted to ask you, because there were people in Congress at the time in Washington saying that the banking sanctions were devastating on Iran and that that was making Iran move on the nuclear deal and so on. Do you not think that? I don't think it was really devastating Iran because, uh, you know, Iran's economy contracted by at, at most like 10%. People felt that there were some areas like medicine uh, and foreign travel, moving money abroad, where the hardship was felt really harshly. But I, I think the sanctions were preventing Iran from meeting the demands of its people, which are jobs and economic growth. They weren't completely ruining the economy because Iranians were getting around the sanctions at a cost. I see. And, and Mohammed Shabani, can I just bring you in on 
the, the, the a point we really heard there that it, you know, the economy is big in itself and you know could withstand sanctions, and that's partly because there was a lot of non-oil economy, isn't it? It's not just all about oil. I think Iran um, in the region is the, among the oil exporters is, has the most diversified economy. At the height of the sanctions, when the oil prices were running at 140, 150 dollars a barrel, oil exports only accounted for around 20 percent of GDP. In comparison, most GCC states have oil exports account for 30, up to half of GDP. Today, after the sanctions, which were kind of a blessing in disguise in the sense that they forced Iran to rely on other sources of revenue, they went down below 10% of GDP. It's so interesting you use that phrase, uh, a blessing in disguise, because I, I saw this quote from a preacher. I don't think he had the same idea in mind as you, actually. Can you decode it for us? There was a preacher uh, saying the sanctions were a blessing we didn't appreciate. What did he mean by that phrase? (laughs) I think that Iran um, has for decades, whether under the Islamic Republic or the Shah, been faced with a key structural problem of a bloated state involvement in the economy, uh, which has been sustained through petrodollars. Very simple. They've afforded to do the things they have. They've afforded to mismanage the economy. Whenever in Iranian history you've seen oil prices plummet, You've seen more moves towards change, more moves towards liberalization. The reform era, for example, if you look at oil prices when Khatami was in power, they were around $20 a barrel. When he left office, they were around $40 a barrel. So if you draw a graph with oil prices and reform in Iran, you will see a very strong correlation between these two. Having said that, I saw a recent study which showed that the oil sanctions and the banking sanctions had cost Iran a grand total of 150 billion US dollars. In comparison, Iran will lose 180 billion US dollars from low oil prices. Rouhani, just because he has a nuclear deal, doesn't mean that he's, you know, he's off the hook and everything's great now. Okay, Let, let's bring in Nazila and just ask a bit about the impact of all of this, because the unemployment rate is pretty high in Iran. And those two students, uh, they were saying after we recorded that, these students in London, that a lot of people are voting on the economy, you know, as they do everywhere else. Uh, and it's, it's jobs. People want jobs. So, Nazila, how important is that? Oh, uh, Owen, it's very important. But the other thing that is on voters' minds right now is corruption, which is an open topic, uh, very popular. Newspapers write about it openly, and the numbers that they're floating around are just astronomical. And before the sanctions were tightened, a lot of economic analysts were saying that it is the corruption and mismanagement in the country that is going to bring the economy to its knees. So these are other issues that people think about. It's not just the sanctions. People know that mismanagement and corruption are also playing a major role. Well, yes, as people talk to us from all around the country, one of the major issues that they talk about is unemployment, but referring to what Nazila said about corruption, when we talk about sanction, we just we are talking about how it affected the GDP, the growth and all that. But the sanctions brought a different type of corruption to the economy as well. We had this category called uh, sanction dealers, or as we say in Farsi, kaseban tahrim because Iran couldn't deal with a big part of the world directly due to the sanctions. They needed some middlemen to do that. And because of that, a lot of poverty and corruption happened in Iran. One thing I was wondering is, when the sanctions were lifted, has that made a difference in the sense of foreign goods 
becoming available in the marketplace in Tehran and provincial cities that were previously not available? I think foreign goods have always been available. Uh-huh. It's just a question of at which price. I was living in Tehran under the toughest sanctions regime imposed on any country in history. And what I saw was a quadrupling of the price of uh, Kellogg's cornflakes. You still so had <laughs> Kellogg's cornflakes for breakfast. You could have it if you, if you could afford it. But, you know, it just cost a lot more. We've looked at uh, politics and the economy. Let's just think about some social issues now, what's happening in Iran in that regard, what matters to people from conservative families, what matters to people from more liberal ones. And we're going to start this by listening to Iranian scholar Nahid Siamdust. She is a research scholar at the Centre of Near Eastern Studies at New York University, and she knows a lot about music, the music scene in particular. I should say she's the author of a forthcoming book, Soundtrack of the Revolution, The Politics of Music in Iran. So what is acceptable at the moment in Iran in terms of music and what does the regime say is unacceptable? What's changing on that front? Um, So currently, I mean, the Iranian government has gone through a process whereby it's decided that what's acceptable are, you know, themes and kinds of music that don't threaten its legitimacy, so to speak. You know, themes that are political are not acceptable. Previously, it used to be that even themes that were, you know, sort of about earthly love or relations between the genders were not acceptable. But those themes are absolutely okay now. Really, the only themes are ones that the government perceives as challenging its legitimacy. Pop music is totally fine. Some rock musicians, some highly sort of, you know, groomed government approved rock musicians are okay. Very few. Uh, Rap is still not okay, although every now and then there'll be a rap song that's okay. But for the most part, rap, rock are, you know, and certainly not heavy metal are not acceptable. Reading about this in advance of talking to you, I was fascinated to to see that there's a rapper, Amir Tataloo, who, you know, you'd think was not acceptable to the regime, both by format and sort of mm-hmm. style. He's got long hair and is generally sort of, you know, not very conformist. Lots and, of tattoos. Lots of tattoos, yeah. <laughs> and yet the military have been sort of using him to make their points. So tell us about that. At around the time when the nuclear agreement was uh, signed in July 2015, about a day or two afterwards, Amir Tatalu came out with this video, which is called Nuclear Energy. And you see him on a Navy ship out in the Persian Gulf and among, uh, you know, military officers who are clearly official officers. These are not just actors. And it was quite a surprise because Ami Tatalu has been banned pretty much ever since he came on the scene. And he was one of the very first rappers to be on the scene. But it appears that another issue that the government has come around to is that Iran's youth may not possibly be, you know, necessarily interested in the uh, extreme sort of religious discourse, but does uh, show interest in feelings of nationalism and, uh, you know, being proud of being Iranian. And the nuclear issue is one such subject. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. So, yes, he'll be catching a nationalist wave. He thinks that's Mm -hmm. going to work commercially. But basically, the Ministry of Culture is still saying he's not acceptable. And yet the military 
are making videos with. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's just the situation in Iran. You have a lot of different power players. You have a lot of uh, different people deciding on things. The Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance is the body that needs to issue permits for any kind of musical production or performance. However, every now and then you have random things happening where somebody will take things into their own power. Maybe they have a direct link to higher powers that override the powers of the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance. And they're able to get permits to do these, uh, you know, one-off sort of occurrences that sort of shock everyone. And at the same time, people are still, I presume, getting arrested because the state doesn't like their music. Arrests are rarer, although in the recent months there has been a clampdown on social and civil society. And um, there have been arrests such as of the heavy metal band Confess, uh, which has made the rounds on social media. Most often it's interrogations and warnings to musicians to stop singing about certain themes. Now then, if we just have 30 seconds or so to listen to something a bit surprising from within Iran, music from within Iran, what would you recommend and why? If you want to listen to something that is really surprising, you'd have to just go to bands like, you know, an underground heavy metal band like Confess that rejects the notion of God and has been labelled as being satanic. But I think Confess does what... Iranian bands really are not allowed to do, which is why they are currently um, in trouble. There we are, the heavy metal band Confess with its uh, surprising music from Iran. Now then, uh, Javed Salahi... Isfahani, I wanted to ask you something about this. Social rules are in many ways the key thing for the regime, aren't they? I mean, they could do things on the economy. They could even make some compromises on politics. But the revolution is almost defined by the social rules. Is that a fair comment? That is true. The Islamic Republic has never been defined by a particular set of economic rules like uh, socialism or communism was. And moral codes, social codes have been much more important in defining what is the Islamic Republic. And for that reason, they tend to be much more rigid. Can I add something uh, uh, that I think affects how social rules, how music, elections, everything in Iran is changing? And that is demography. Ten years ago, the largest cohort of Iranians were in their early 20s. Now, the largest cohorts are around age 30. What this means is that people who were so important in street politics, people who have redefined music and many things in Iran are aging. And this is one of the reasons why I think you now have Rouhani instead of Khatami, someone who's more moderate and who's much more focused on economics. So that's interesting. So Rouhani is basically economic reform, but not necessarily social reform. Is that right, uh, Nazila Fati, that we should not be expecting him to do reforms on these social rules, because that's not his focus. His focus is the economy. Rouhani has done a lot in terms of social reform. Let me go a little bit even further back. When I was growing up uh, in the 80s, every morning our bags were searched so that we wouldn't take any kind of pop music tapes to school. 
That changed in, in the 90s when Khatami was elected and the Ministry of Culture started allowing certain musicians to release albums. Ten years ago when I was in Iran, there were no street bands. But now there are all these street bands all over Tehran and other uh, cities. And I think they are now banning certain contents instead of the music itself. And this has happened under President Rouhani. The fact that there are musicians openly on the streets, I think, is a sign of huge uh, social uh, progress. Mohammed Shabani, it's quite useful to talk about music because I think normally in the West, this discourse is all through the rules on women's dress and so on. Mm-hmm. How, is that a useful prism, that normal Western prism? Is that a good way of looking at it? Or, or, or do you think these other issues you know, for Iranians are equally important? If you look at... Look at the situation through that specific prism of, of women. I have a tough time seeing Iran uh, under the current government ever complying with Western standards. I think what Nazlia brought up about gradual change within its own context is much more useful and fruitful to gain an idea of, of the kind of developments that have occurred. Iran even today, I think it's it's not comparable to Iran of five years ago. That's how things change, how quickly they change. I think the insight on how... The government is increasingly turning to nationalist discourse rather than religious discourse. Also in its cultural productions, in the depictions of its uh, most known faces, people like Foreign Minister Javad Zarif, even the commander of the Foreign Operations Branch of the IRGC, Qasem Soleimani, one of the most popular figures in Iran today, is less associated with defending Shia Islam than he is with defending Iranian interests. Yes, well, that's that's obviously very important then. So, Salam, can you help us with how would the ultra-conservatives and the hardliners view this sort of uh, movement towards nationalism away from religion as being the key pitch for, of the regime? Well, actually, it seems like there has been a move from the ultra-conservatives to take advantage of that. From a couple of years ago, even before Rouhani comes to office, we could see that Ahmadinejad had this uh, nationalism agenda, and they were seeing that there might be this conflict in the region, Shia-Sunni conflict, and so using some anti-Arab sentiments of some nationalist Iranians to actually use it uh, for this power relations and the conflicts that we see today. So I see using that rapper, Pur Tatalu, in this context as well, because his story is a bit complicated because there was news that he had been arrested and uh, things like that. So he he could have been used just to reinforce the nationalist uh, sentiments of people when this conflict with Saudi Arabia was near our borders. Right. So so is this a sign, can I put this to, to anyone who wants to come in on this, that the religious leaders of the country are, are just up against it? I mean, they, they can't really sustain their line. And as a result, they're having to make these compromises on some social rules, on making a pitch for nationalism instead, from allowing the uh, Rouhani to do his economic reforms, you know, that they are a bit embattled. You know, Owen, if I may say, this is Nazila, I think uh, there are a lot of misunderstanding about Iran and about the Islamic regime, and this is one of those. Everybody thinks that the Islamic Republic is a religious regime. On the surface, it is. 
But the truth of the matter is that it has been very pragmatic. And after Khomeini's death in 1989, the regime has very much distanced itself from those religious principles. And when you look at Iran today, the Islamic regime is run by military figures rather than religious figures. The clerics that you see, they don't have much religious clout. They are men who have sided with the revolutionary guards. And these revolutionary guards, they do see their interest in tapping on nationalist sentiments at this time. Whatever you hear about religion, these are just uh, remnants of the past religious ideology. And I see uh, Khomeini's grandson being disqualified in the same line as well. I mean, there is very little left of Khomeini's legacy to a point that even his grandson cannot take part in such important elections. And many of these social issues, social aspects, sometimes they become power playgrounds. Uh, for example, like when you talk about women's issues, sometimes I agree with Nazila that uh, many conservatives are pragmatist, but sometimes it becomes a power struggle. For example, they might not allow Rouhani do some issues just sh to show their power. For example, they ban women to watch sports right. in the stadiums and they don't care if women will go to the it's stadiums. It's a front line. It, become, it becomes a front line. An ideological front line. Any other comments from you, Dr. Javed Slahi Isfahani or Mohammed Shibani? I wanted to say that since we're talking about elections, elections are a very important part of this uh, flexibility that we have seen in the Islamic Republic of change coming at various times, at various levels of the government. Of course, it hasn't affected the very top yet, but if you look at how a small city is run, for example, It bears no resemblance to what it was 20 years ago. And I see election as a very important part of these uh, perhaps former hardliners hearing the voice of the people. In Neshabur, where I was two months ago, uh, you could see very visibly that because Rouhani's people are in control of the electoral boxes, that the likelihood of uh, influence is reduced from the uh, conservatives. So they were really looking very closely at who the voters are and acting very much like uh, you would get a politician in the U.S. trying to read the minds of the people, see what would sell, what would not sell. And I think that is a very important dynamic that is taking place right now. And we've just got time for a, a last word from you, Mohammed Shabani. The only thing I would perhaps add is that I would be careful about seeing religion and nationalism as two irrevocably opposed poles. I think uh, nationalism can be channeled through, uh, through multiple ways. You have a very strong current of religious nationalism in Iran, and I don't think that should be discounted entirely. Just because you see a rise in nationalism doesn't necessarily mean there's a complete you know, death of religion. So thank you all very much. Now, if you'd like to listen to the programme again, or indeed any other programme from our archive, you can do that by going to bbcworldservice.com forward slash newshour extra, and you can stream it there. But it may be more convenient to get the podcast, in which case just put BBC Newshour Extra into your podcast provider or search engine, and it will lead you to the right place that you can subscribe to the programme and get it every week. Uh, we do like to hear from you. The email address newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk 
we enjoy your tweets sometimes, most of the time, uh, at BBC NH Extra. And that's it for now. So thank you very much for listening. And from all of us here, goodbye. <laughs>